God good. He loved us enough that he gave us the option to be here. Glad we exercised good judgment and came. But there would have been no choice or an option had it not been for the love of God. And that's a very overwhelming thing. Every breath we take, Mother was talking about it a few minutes ago, how grateful we ought to be. Yes, sir. And we are. We really are. Because you're here. And um, I am just, I am humbled at how good God is to his people. I want to give honor to Bishop and Mother this morning. Thank the Lord for their continued leadership. And to Pastor and Sister Wright, thank the Lord for their leadership. Give honor to them. I have just, I will tell you, never, never greet a guest minister in your pulpit more fervently than you do your own pastor. Because I'm going to leave town. I've been leaving for 21 years around here. (laughs) I love coming, Sister Owens. I do. This is home. But I leave. And your pastor is not leaving. This has been Pastor's Appreciation Month, and I know we probably have thought about it. But if you haven't, think about it. You've got a day or two left. But I have concluded in my own assessment of things that whoever came up with Pastor's Appreciation Month never pastored. Because if they had of, Pastor's Appreciation would start at midnight on January 1 and end on midnight December That's good. 31. That's good. And when you're in the hospital, you may want to see a doctor, but somewhere along the way, just about as quickly, you want to see the man of God in your life. When you're going through something, you want the man and the woman of God in your life to be there praying for you. People like me come and go, but people like your pastor and his wife, they're here. And they'll be here tomorrow, and they're going to be here next week, and you know that. So don't let not not even a moment pass without extending some some measure of appreciation, letting them know every day just how thankful you are for them. You are not going to be saved without the gospel or a pastor. That's right. I don't care how good we get at what we are doing. Without a pastor, Brother Joel, and I'm in trouble. I'm I'm in trouble. Bishop and I were talking yesterday or day before something about stuff that he has been there with me through and events and situations and I I told him I said I'll just be honest with you I don't always like you but I have always loved you and y'all act all sanctified about it but you don't always like your pastor either And the reason is they're right and we're wrong sometimes. But we love them and we trust them. And when we get right with God, we like them again. (laughs) I'm telling you, a man of God in your life that will tell you the truth is priceless. Would you lift your hands a moment? Let's just pray here. See where we're going to go. Lord, we are gathered here because you have drawn us here. 
We're not here just because of schedule or just because of the day of the week. But Lord, we're here because you have been so kind and drawn us into this place and we've answered that call. Lord, we surrender ourselves at this point for whatever's to come next. Speak to us, speak to our hearts, our spirits, our minds, our emotions, and heal us. Make us whole today. Angels that are here, we release you to do what God has sent you here for. In Jesus' name. You can seat yourself after you've hugged somebody. and children thank the Lord for them my kids are I don't understand people that don't want kids they prevent you from ever getting bored and you never run out of something to do I was on the phone with Bishop the other day and Erica came in my office at the house and was trying to talk to me and Eliana came in and Eliana's always wanting to mother Erica around and she walked in she said do you not see that our father is talking to the bishop oh well praise God kids have changed my life people told me that kids would change my life and um, I thought well maybe maybe in a couple of areas but they, they changed it in every area and um some of the things that I look forward to the most in my life are going home because when that back door opens from the garage, those two little kids start screaming, Daddy, 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 and here they come. And I wouldn't trade that for all the gold in Fort Knox. I'm telling you, it just, it has, it has made my life not just different but better, and I wouldn't trade it. I thought I knew what love was, and then when I had children, I found out what love really was. And um, they they just love you. They don't care. They just, they just love you. And it's taught me a lot about my relationship with the Lord that I didn't know. I, I thought I knew a lot about him, and I found out how little I really knew about the love of God. I, I, I have, my children and my wife have healed me and educated me and made me whole and, and taught me probably more uh, than I have them in a lot of ways. Um, just because of the unfeigned love that they love me with. And I, I just wanted to give honor to them this morning and be so thankful to the Lord for it. I am 48 and a half years old. And uh, I'm enjoying the fire out of it. The older I get, I, I thought I would dread getting old. I haven't. Uh, older, I have not, and, and in my opinion, 48 is a long way from being old. Um, I, I have, uh, I move a little slower sometimes if I sit too long on an airplane. Your left hip, and your right knee, and some of y'all that are beyond 40 understand that. I remember when Bishop turned 60, I flew in and uh, I sat up at the house with him, and we sat there till daylight the next morning, literally. And him just, it was like he was grieving turning 60. And I laughed at him. I teased him. I really did. I was merciless. I, I made fun of him all night long. 
and he'd he'd want a drink, and I'd tell him, "Oh, elder, just keep your seat. I'll get that for you." And I I, I was pretty hard on him. <laughs> and um, when I turned forty, you know, you hear all these stories about how your body changes at forty, and I was still the athletic specimen at forty that I was at thirty nine, and uh, nothing changed, and my agility was good till about 45 and then things started changing and muscles you didn't know you had start showing up and uh, they're so worn and they're and it just everything changed and um, when you stop and think about all of that and you look back over the course of your life in my head I still I still think uh, and I've heard Bishop say this a lot and I laughed at him when he said it but I still think like I'm 20 I think I'm capable of doing all of the things and conquering all the things I conquered at 20. And then I attempt that and realize just how much of a moron I really am. I really cannot do all that stuff. And I, I thought that the more I learned through the course of my life, the easier life was going to get, and that's not the case. You, you do gain wisdom and knowledge, but the challenges keep coming. And um, just because age has crept up on you, it doesn't negate the fact that changes are coming and challenges are coming and you're going to have to deal with them. And it gets overwhelming. There are times um, I start thinking about 70 years by promise, then another 10 by mercy. And at 50 or 48, you're getting closer to that 70 mark. And, and I remember when Bishop turned 60, he kept talking about all the things that uh, God had promised him that he was going to do. And here I am at 60, and, and I don't know how many years I've got ahead of me. And he and I talked about that, not just that night, but we've talked about it since then. This past year, when he uh, reached another milestone in his maturing, um, we were talking one day, and, and I started getting these texts from him, and it was like, 21 days and counting. And then the next day it was 20 days. And then 19. So finally I texted him. I said, what in the world? Is, are, what? I mean, that's all I would get, a text that said 21 days, 20 days. And he kept saying, I'm, I'm on countdown. And the Lord spoke to me something through all of that because it, it dawned on me just how real what he was thinking about really is. When, when you are born, the time ahead of you begins to diminish a day at a time. And it makes you wonder, am I, am I living life to the fullest? Am I obeying God? Am I doing what God's called me to do? I don't want to get to the end of however long he's given me and, and have to look back with regret and know I should have witnessed to that person. I should have invited them to church. I should have worshipped that night. I know I didn't feel like it. My body was hurting, but I, I knew that morning in church I should Man, I wish I'd have done that. I'd rather look back and think about how I could have done things differently than have to look back and realize I just didn't do anything at all. And <clears throat> we can make a mess out of stuff. We might even fail at what we're doing, but in the kingdom and in the pursuit of things of the kingdom, we, we need to be doing something. Give it everything you've got. We may not do it right. We may not be perfect about it, but somewhere along the way, there's going to be a payoff to all of this. I remember as a kid watching in the church, and this will be an omelet in a little while, but right now it'll feel like scrambled eggs, so just hang on. I remember watching in the church, and I'd see people that had served God for 50 and 60 years, and 
I would wonder to myself, I never voiced it out loud, but I, I, I asked myself the question, what's the payoff at the end of all of this? To live like this and to serve God and to do what we do, what's the ultimate payoff? What's the use of doing this? I understand heaven, but somehow or another, there's got to be some residual benefit in this life too. There can't, you, you cannot just convince me that God would expect us to live for just the hope of eternity, that there has to be some measure of love and reward coming back to the people of God in this life. And I, I came to the conclusion that if there was not something that was going to come back from God now, it was going to be difficult for me to stay faithful. Uh, I, I, as a kid, this was me as a teenager, and I, I thought, you know what, if heaven is the only reward it's going to be difficult for me to do this. But I, the older I get, if God never does another thing for me in this life, heaven is plenty reward. Not going to hell is plenty motivation. I want to do the right thing. And it's not about whether I'm getting something back in this life or not. Even though there are rewards that God gives us here, what I'm living for has nothing to do with this planet or this age or this era or this time. What I'm living for is that eternal destiny that God has given us a hope and a promise for. And, and the rewards in this life, we, we will adapt. If we're not careful, we adapt to punishment and we adapt to the deprivation of reward. We learn how to live without being rewarded. You, you pay your taxes and nobody from the IRS shows up at your front door with a gift basket every year and says, hey, thank you for paying your taxes. And we learn how to do what's required of us without the reward of, of, of saying, hey, I appreciate what you did. And so there's got to be more than just what's happening in this life. There's got to be something that's greater than the punishments of this life or the rewards of this life. And it's eternity. When you realize, when you really realize that there is a heaven, you automatically realize that there is also a hell. And we have, in the church, somehow or another, we have migrated away from those two topics to some degree. Ask people in the church, ask preachers, how many of them can, without a Bible, tell you the description of heaven? They can tell you the measurements of it. They can tell you how long and wide and tall and what the gates are and what the walls are and what are the streets made out of and what are those rivers going to be filled with and all of this stuff. There are a few details they can give you, but I'll guarantee you that 60% of the people you ask about heaven cannot describe heaven to you without a Bible. And it makes it a little confusing to me to think about where it is. I, Bishop and I were talking about destinations this morning, but how in the world can I preach to you about heaven if I don't even know what it looks like, what it's going to be like? How can I preach to you about the hope we have in eternity if I haven't spent a little bit of time thinking about it and studying it? And by the same token, how can I explain to you heaven and not have the same love for you and tell you that there is a hell? You can't believe in Jesus and not believe in Satan. You can't believe in heaven and not believe in hell. And it's impossible to preach just about heaven and never mention the fact that if you don't live right, you're going to end up lost and in eternity spending it in hell. Now, in the world we live in, and I've said hell about ten times, and I'm getting the same response every time I say it. It makes us nervous. It makes us tense. What are our guests going to say if you keep saying somebody's going to go to hell? I didn't say it. The book says it. If we do not live the way the Word of God teaches us to, there is a reward for doing the wrong thing too.
if God never, Sister Wright, does another thing for me in this life, I am motivated to go to heaven because I do not want to go to hell. I, I don't do what I do because I'm afraid somebody will find out if I do something wrong. I do it because I don't want to go to hell and I do want to spend eternity with the one I love more than anything else in the whole world. So we've got those motivations, positive and negative. But the enemy's smart. He, he knows what he's doing. He, he, is, he is so good at what he does that, and he's subtle. You would think that every attack he was going to put on you would just be like right out in front on a wide open field and you'd see it coming two or three days before it got there and you'd be prepared for it. But that's not how he works all the time. In fact, seems like more often than not, he, he, is, he works under cover. He, he, he is so subliminal in his approach to us and he'll, he'll let us have good church. He'll let our life get great. He'll let things be awesome and we think sometimes, I'm going to tell you what we better learn how to do. We better learn how to tell the difference between a blessing and a bribe. Everything we think is a blessing from God may be a bribe from hell. And some of us get so hung up, we just want to be blessed, blessed, blessed. If I were the devil, I'm not, I've been accused of it a time or two, but I'm not him. But if I were him, I'd play to what you talked about the most. Oh, I just want to be blessed. I 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 would, I would, if I were him, I would do everything I could to bless some of the people of God right out of the kingdom. And there is a distinct difference between blessings and bribes. They feel the same in your hand. You can spend them the same. You can get a paycheck and walk out in public with that. But you can get a bribe and it's got to be under the table. But what you can do with it's the same. And I'm afraid that sometimes the enemy has managed to bribe some of us into going to sleep. Bishop and I were talking the other day and I said, Bishop, have you ever thought about how many of those virgins were asleep that night? I know they were the wise and the foolish. But do you know how many of them were actually asleep? All of them. Even the wise virgins were asleep. Nobody was looking for him. Nobody was awake anticipating him. And if you look through scripture, there seems to be this pattern that the people who ought to be awake are usually asleep. Can you not tarry with me for just a little while? And I know, Brother Shelton, we're in church. Are you fixing to rebuke? No, I'm not rebuking anybody. I'm talking. I'm just, we're just chatting for a little while. There seems to be a pattern through scripture that the people who ought to be awake and watching typically find themselves asleep and surprised. And there comes a point with us that Jesus finally allows us, because he loves us so much, he'll give you what you want most. Lot, I need you to get your junk and your family and get out of this town because I'm about to burn this entire valley down. Lot argues with him all night long. Finally, the angels of the Lord deliver them out of the city. And Lot hears the angel of the Lord say to him, Get up into that mountain, for I've prepared a high place up there. Get in that high place. I've got a place up there prepared for you. Just take your family and go. And Lot's response to God's promise was, Oh, 
I pray you don't make me go up there lest some evil thing should overtake me. How ridiculous is it to think that God would prepare a place for you and then allow something evil to assault you when you get there? And so the angel of the Lord, this is, this, this little bit of scripture is probably the one part of scripture that scares me the most. Lot argues with him until finally the response of heaven's messengers is fine. If you don't want to go where I want you to go, tell me what you want. I believe in coming boldly before the throne. And I believe we ought to make our petitions. The book says to make your petitions known before God. But at the end of that, there's got to be a word that comes out of your mouth and an expression that's manifested in your life that says, now you know what I want. Nevertheless, thy will be done, not mine. Whatever whatever it is you see fit for my life, that's what I want. Above and beyond what I want. It's okay to tell him how you feel. But when you're done telling him, let him know I'll cooperate with whatever it is you want done in my life. I may not like it. I may not feel like shouting about it when I get to church. I may not want to dance across the front. And I may have to work through some bitterness over this when it's all said and done. But I need you to know that I'm going to submit to you. And whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Where you tell me to go, I'm going to go. And what you want done from by me when I get there is what I'm going to do. But there's a there's a place you can get with God where he finally just throws his hands up and says, fine, you don't want my will for your life, then you tell me what you want. You pray about what's, what's going on in your life, but don't pray too much. Don't pray about it to the point you get to the place you can't say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Lot says, you know what, I want to go to Zoar. Which the word Zoar actually means a place of small things or a small place. Lot gave up a high place in exchange for a small place. And God's response to that was, go. I've seen people that got a release from God to do what they wanted to do and thought, this must be the will of God. I'm blessed. Oh, yes, this is it. This is it. And and the tragedy of it is, no, what you've just been given is the permissive will of God. God gave you permission to do it your way. He isn't going to bless it, and he's not obligated to cover or protect you while you're doing it. Judas, whatever you do, do it quickly. Judas, Judas and Lot both. Really, you're going to tell me that two angels from heaven spend the night at your house, do miracle after miracle all night long, and you still can't see the writing on the wall? You still are unaware of who's in front of you? How far gone do you have to be to argue with them after miracle upon miracle all night long and in the morning being delivered outside the city? I don't know if they walked them through the crowd or they translated them. I don't know how they got them out there. But the scripture says that those angels delivered Lot and his family to the city gates, outside the city gates. Judas, whatever you're going to do, go do it quickly. He had an option. And he chose. 
And I've watched I've watched things in the church, and and I've watched people in the church. And I, I'm just I'm I'm just talking about what what's in my spirit this morning. And man of God will be back next week and fix it all. But I've I've watched us in the church. Jesus made a statement at one point. He said, "You you have forced me to serve you in your sin, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not winking at your ignorance anymore. I'm not going to pat a cake with you and play like it's okay." And I've watched us over the last few years as as the people of God get so good at what we do that some doors we used to keep shut in our personal lives, we've allowed to open. And, well, this don't look like a sinful situation. And you know what? It may not be. But it's going to open you up to stuff that's going to influence you to do things that are sin. And there was a time in our, our ranks where we taught that principle. There's some things that you don't do, not because they're wrong, but because of what they lead you to. Well, I don't know if that's a biblical principle. Well, the scripture says that Satan appears as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. They are trying to get you somewhere. They're trying to get us to make decisions we shouldn't make. They're trying to get us to let things in our life that we shouldn't let in there. And little by little by little by little by little by little by little, we sear our conscience, we callous our spirits, and one day we look around and God's not there and don't realize how long it's been since he was there, and truth be told, it's been a long time. But because we had become so jaded to everything going on around us, we're narcissistic. We are, the nature of humanity is to be narcissist. We, we want what we want. We want it to be all about us. We, we have a Burger King service mentality and i know the bishop loves burger king but the mantra at burger king is your way right away every day at burger king there's a customer bill of rights at burger king where you can you can find out just how right you are and and however you want your burgers how we're gonna fix it you just let us know and we'll do it and that mentality has crept its way into the church and so we come to church and i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna tell you what i'm gonna tell you what a lack of involvement in 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 what we're supposed to do you know that, and is this all right? I'm just, I'm just meandering along with him here, just trying to, in, 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 in scripture, that tabernacle plan, they, there were processional laws and ceremonial laws that had to be fulfilled every time a sacrifice was given. There were things that had to be done in the courtyard that could not be skipped. You, you couldn't do them this week and then next week not do them. Every time a sacrifice was brought, and that sacrifice was offered, it had to be done the exact same way. So whatever the ceremonial law was in the courtyard, the high priest had to do it every time a sacrifice came to them. And then when they got from there and they got into the holy place, there were ceremonial and processional things that had to be done in there. And not just all these things have to be done, but they have to be done in a certain order. And so if, if it was not done in a certain order and if it was not done according to the law, then what was done didn't count. And you had to start all over and go get another animal and start the sacrifice all over again. But to get where they had to go with him, he made it impossible for them to get there. The veil, and I, I have studied this and, and I'm no expert or, or and I haven't, surely read everything about it but I, I spent a couple of years looking into this and, and there was no door in the veil 
and the veil was stretched taut from left to right and floor to ceiling. There was no way to go under it, no way to go over it, and no way to squeeze around the edges of it and get behind it. And according to most scholars and theologians, the veil would have been anywhere from 19 to 24 inches thick. So it was no small deal. And when it was stretched out across those posts and everything was hung the way it was supposed to be, it was as impenetrable as that block wall might be. Yet where God called the people of God to be, where the priest had to get to, was beyond what they couldn't get past. And, and, and I know it seems like as we walk with God that he, he has this, it's like he has this routine that he is going to take us through certain things and, and put us through the ringer. We're going to have to come to church and we're going to have to worship. We're going to have to get out of our comfort zones and we're going to have to do something to physically demonstrate to him that I'm yours, I'm surrendered to you, my life is it's not enough to just say words. Something in our life has got to also communicate to God, I'm here, I'm yours, do with me whatever it is you want to do with me. And you would think that after you serve God long enough and you reach a certain age and you've had the Holy Ghost since you were whatever age as a child when you were filled with the Holy Ghost and however long you've been in the kingdom, somehow or another there's this mindset in us that says somewhere along the way this is going to get easier. Somewhere along the way we're going to fight the last fight, we're going to climb the last hill, we're going to swim the last river and we're going to deal with the last demonic spirit in the world. Somewhere along the way we're going to finally break everything that's got to be broke and, and step into what we're, we're looking for. Yet... <clears throat> When, when Moses was leaning more to Joshua and needing Joshua to help him, the scripture says that Joshua heard, Moses heard from God. And Moses went to Joshua and told Joshua, here's what you're about to do. You're going to go make war against this king, and then you're going to make war here. And the scripture says that Joshua did everything that God commanded Moses for him to do. Now you think about that. Well, I want to hear it from God for myself. And some things you will. But predominantly, our marching orders are not going to come straight from God to me. I'm going to get that through the person I'm submitted to. And if you'll read that story and if you'll read that passage, you'll realize that not only did Joshua obey everything Moses told him to do, God did for Joshua's efforts what he promised Moses he was going to do. You don't just get instructions from leadership but also the promises that God gives the leadership and they convey to us fall on us when we've obeyed what God told us to do. And the Bible says that not only did Joshua obey Moses, but the scripture says that God began to harden the hearts of the kings. And there were kings that Joshua could have made peace with that would have agreed not to oppose Israel in any way. But the scripture says that God hardened their hearts against Joshua. God made them hate Joshua. God turned them against Joshua. And, and you would think somewhere along the way, God's going to start fighting our battles for us. But ask Job if that's the way it seemed to be at his house. Job was minding his own business. Heaven and hell are having a conference. Hell picks a fight with God, and God drags Job into the middle of it at hell's request. Nothing about that makes sense to me. How fair was that to Job? And if all we look at it as is here I am going through one more thing, then after a while, all the trials, all the valleys, all the hardships begin to mount up on you and it seems unfair. And if we're not careful, we start getting mad at God. Why'd you let me go through that? 
God had enough confidence in Job that when hell was dumb enough to pick a fight and drag Job out of obscurity, God said, you know what? I know my relationship with Job. You want to mess with him? I'm telling you right now, it ain't going to work out like you think. All right, fine. You want him? I'll let you have him. And when it was all said and done, here we are all these thousands of years later, still preaching about Job, still telling stories about Job, and having our faith increase because of Job's conduct. And everything that we go through doesn't always seem fair to us. It doesn't seem like we deserve it. And sometimes the hardship you go through has nothing to do with you, but somebody that's going to hear about it later. Sometimes you've got to go through hell just to get to the other side so somebody's faith can be lifted tomorrow and not have to go through that. But no, God is going to see me through what I'm going through. But again, because we're such narcissistic creatures, we think everything we're going through is about us. And it isn't. Sometimes God trusts you so much that the only way he can teach in the class is to have a teacher. And since God is a spirit and no man has seen God at any time, he selects from among us teachers at random moments. And says, you know what, I know your life made sense, but I'm fixing to transfer you and your job. And I'm going to cause you to go live somewhere for six months. Lord, I, I had the house I loved. My kids are happy. My family's happy. We got a great church situation. Yeah, I know, but I'm going to mess it all up. I don't understand. Well, I, you, I know you don't, but just go do what I've told you to do. God's trying to get us somewhere that we can't get on our own. And his methodology sometimes seems so weird and strange. Here I am about to subdue every king in front of me, and you want me to pack my house, load my kids up, take them out of the school they love, take my family away from the city they love, and you're going to transfer us out here in the middle of nowhere, and then six months later, here I am back. I don't understand why I just had to go through all of that. But somewhere down the way, we will understand that. Somewhere down the way, there's going to be a revelation that comes that says, hey, it really was worth it all. I see it now. I understand. If I hadn't gone there, this would never have happened. And God is continually trying to get us somewhere we can't get on our own. And just about the time you've done all the ceremonial stuff and all the processional stuff, and there's nothing between you and the ultimate will of God but a veil you realize having done all to do but stand takes on a new meaning I've traveled I've done I've, I've worked I've tried to do I've tried to prepare I've done all I know to do and yet I still can't get that door to open I don't know what's taking so long about this and I don't know why that's taking so long I'm going to tell you something about this deal as far as I can tell most of, of the plan of God coming to fruition in our life is about timing and nothing more you can be in the right place with the right people at the wrong time and miss what God wants done. Joshua, go subdue all these kings. Go, go conquer all this land. Joshua may have gotten tired of war. I don't know. And there were occasions where he could have entered into an agreement with a king where they would have pledged loyalty to David or, or to Moses. And, and you know what? You tell Moses wherever he wants to go, he can have it. But the Lord wasn't willing for that to be the case. And he hardened the hearts of those in front of Joshua that forced Joshua into battle after battle after battle. When it was over, 
Joshua had the peace of mind to know there's nothing left in this valley that can destroy us. There's no kings left here that can betray us. There's nobody here for the enemy to come and turn against us. Did Joshua spend time away from his family? Did those working with him spend time away from their families? Yes. Do you think they missed their families, their kids? Yes. What was the benefit of that? Why? Why? I don't know how long it took. It may have taken 10 years. I don't know. But why would God want Joshua to spend that much time fighting and making kings mad at him just so he'd have another battle in front of him? Because somewhere down the way, God knew my plan coming to pass means I don't need my people constantly in a battle. I need these kings subdued so that your children and grandchildren can achieve this part of my will. Do you know why David couldn't build the house of God when it came time to build it? Have you all ever thought about that? What was God's reason for telling him, you can't build my house? Too much blood on your hands. Why was there too much blood on his hands? And why was he always fighting? Because God told him to. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something to whoever I'm talking to at this point. Sometimes doing the will of God will keep you from being able to do what you want to do. David had a strong desire. He loved God. He wanted to be the one to build the house of God. And the Lord let him do everything but that. Well, that don't seem fair. But because he obeyed God all of his reign and he fought who God told him to fault, he was disqualified from building the house of God because he obeyed God all of his life. And it doesn't seem fair. And we think we're going, we're going to incrementally work our ministries and lives so that we can ultimately reach that, that premier agenda item that we've got. I'm going to pray so that one day I can do this. But doing what God's called me to do right now may mean that I never do that over there. It might mean that I'd never pastor another church. It might mean that my, my, my destiny is to ride planes and cars all over the world doing what God's called me to do and never be called pastor and never be called this or never do that or never. I'm, I'm, I don't get to stick around and see churches grow. And it's frustrating to travel all the time and see God do things in little moments here and a little moment there, but then leave and hear about the 225 people that prayed through at Antioch West in, in December of 2016. Maybe I get to tell you that's coming, but I don't get to be here to see that most of the time. But it's frustrating. I'd like to tell you that doing the will of God makes everything I don't get to do no problem. And that would be a lie. Because obeying God today means that I'm going to have to get out of here tomorrow and go home. I can't get out of the will of God and just live somewhere so I'll be there when all of this stuff unfolds. I feel like I'm just talking in a whirlwind, but God, God knows exactly what it is he's doing. And he knows exactly why he's called you to do what you're doing. He knows why he transferred you. Whoever it is, I need to say that to one more time. Yes, it was frustrating. Yes, it was irritating. No, it don't make sense. But God has a purpose for every second of your day. My brother passed away four Sundays ago today. Fifty years old. 
when my wife called me, she said, have you talked to your parents? I said, no, not in the last couple of hours. It was Sunday afternoon. I'm kind of resting and getting ready to go to church. And she said, you need to call mom and dad real quick. Your brother's unresponsive, and they're rushing him to the hospital. And she said, I've called Amanda, her friend. She said, I've got Amanda coming to get the girls, and I'm, I'm, I'll be right behind them. So I called Brother Sullivan, and I said, man, look, you, you, you're going to have to get over that. I don't know what's going on, but my mom's 77, dad's 84. I don't know what they're walking into, but I don't want them to be there by themselves. So then I called my sister-in-law, and I was the first one after the doctors told her, they told, she told me or her son told me that uh, Stephen had passed. Uh, just minutes before I called him. And I called my sister back, and I said, Sharon, he's he's gone. She said, what do you mean he's gone? I said, well, and that was the same question I had asked. What what do you mean by that? And I told her, I said, Sharon, he's he's passed. She said, okay, I'm, I'm almost through packing. I'm on my way. She's about four hours away. I'm in Houston. It's 10 to 11 hours back to my house. And so I hung that phone up, Sister Wright, and I, I stood there and, and I could feel this anguish and grief coming over me. And here comes the enemy. So after all this, y'all ever heard that? So after all you've done, this is the reward you get. I took this phone. I still had it in my hand. I laid it down on the dresser right there in the Marriott. I was up on the top floor. And there was a brand new hotel, and I was almost the only guy in it, so I could get as loud as I wanted to. And I know I had that anguish. But I, I have a short fuse, I'll admit it. And stuff like that just lights that fuse for me. I don't know how y'all deal with devils, but they, they just, they irritate me to death. And I got angry. I laid that phone down and I stood there. And I'll admit, tears were running. But I said it out loud. I told the Lord, I said, you and I need to get this fixed and straight right now. I need to say this and I need you to hear me. And I need that lying devil that's come in this room to hear me. I do not understand why you took my brother but it changes nothing between me and you. Whatever we were doing before he died five minutes ago, we're going to still be doing it after we bury him at the end of the week. I don't understand everything about God. And the Lord at that moment, at that moment of surrender, my brother's 50 years old. He, this, this don't ha if I took the time to tell you all that God has revealed and made possible for me to to talk to my dad and and different family it would blow your mind the stuff that i found out as a result of my brother's passing my dad and i began to have a conversation on the drive back from the the cemetery and he began to talk to me about his relationship with god about experiences he's had with god and all of a sudden i got that that realization, you know, in the, in the passenger side, mirror on the side of your car, that little statement in there, objects are closer than they appear in the mirror. The Lord spoke to me. He said, I know I've kept it from you for 48 and a half years, but he's closer than you thought he was. 
I'm in charge here. I know what I'm doing and you're going to have to trust me with this. I found out this year, it's the third time he said it, but I finally got the confirmation. He has admitted three different times he's been baptized in Jesus' name. How did I know? My dad never talks. He's one of those people that just don't say much. But he began to tell me stories the other night when we ought to have been crying on the way back from the cemetery. My dad's telling me stories about God waking him up in the middle of the night. And he's telling me, son, I know I've never told y'all and I probably should have, but God talks to me. And one night he woke me up and told me this and he done this and he did that and he did. And I thought, my God, he's closer than I thought he was. I was looking in the wrong mirror. And sometimes the miracle you need in your life is not that God changes your circumstances. What was that little servant that went out and looked around? Which one of them prophets was he hanging out with? He looked out and he said, my God, we're surrounded. They got us hemmed up out here. And what was that little prophet boy, that little servant boy's name? Do you remember? But he, he ran out the tent. Sister Owens, he looked around, he said, Ooh, that old prophet don't have a clue the mess we in. I better run back in there and help him. And you're always going to have them people in your life. You're always going to have, Brother Favors, the people in your life that's going to tell you how hard it is to be a missionary and how difficult it is to get paperwork. And the sad thing is, they don't have enough sense to pour rain out of a bucket. It's not hard to get paperwork. It's a matter of timing. It's not hard to raise PIMs. It's a matter of timing. You don't want the wrong PIM. You only want the ones that are going to be committed to not only financially supporting what you're doing, but prayerfully praying for you and your wife while you're over there doing what you're doing. But you're always going to have those little morons in the church. And they're going to be in your life. They'll be like ants just running here and there. My God, do you know how bad it is? My brother died. My mama and daddy are sitting in the vehicle at the ER door when they come running out to tell them before they got out of the car. My mama's first words were, God is so good to us. My daddy, who's closer than I thought, his first words were, thank God we got to have him for 50 years. Wasn't, well, my God, why didn't we get to have him 20 more? My dad's first response to tragedy when the bearers of bad news are at the door of the vehicle. Mom and dad were, thank God we got to have him for 50 years. You don't always understand what you're going through. But just go through it. Some stuff he delivers you from. Some stuff he delivers you through. We are so bent on getting it my way that our prayer is always God. And we big on faith. Faith, faith is what you exercise and demonstrate to get God to get you out of something. Faith will make you take his hand. But trust is what will keep you from letting go. Some of us have got this faith deal worked out, but we don't know how to trust him for nothing. Because the minute we take his hand and we're just, we're just dancing and woo, talking in tongues, he's going to deliver me from it. He's looking at you thinking, would you pump the brakes over there, Sparky? 
We're going through this. The greatest insult ever given to him, his disciples did it. He says to them, get in this little boat with me, and we're going to cross over to the other side. We are going to cross over. We, I'll be with you, and we're all going to end up over there. The one that had never lied to them, told them, he promised them, we are going to end up over there, but you're going to have to start out in this boat. He didn't tell them what they were going to end up doing before they got to the other shore. He didn't even promise them that when they got to the other shore, they'd all still be in that boat. What he told them was, from here to there, I got you. I'll see to it you get to the other shore. Just get in here with me. And we expect that whatever we start out in, that's what we're going to end up in. But I got news for you. Sometimes what you start out in was nothing more than God's tool to get you started on the way. And it may change about the first time a wave comes rushing up over the side of that boat. And the disciples go to the one that told them. He told them we're crossing over. And they insult him. In my opinion, the greatest biblical insult against him. They say, carest thou not that we perish. Can you imagine how incredulous that must have sounded to him? And at that point, he might not have cared. I don't know. He might have been so mad at him. But he stops that storm. But Scripture doesn't say anything about the condition of the boat at that point, nor what they had to contend with at that point. They probably still bailing water, trying to get to the other shore when it was all said and done. We have stuff that comes through our life. We don't understand it. We're hemmed up here, boss. We, we are. They have got us cornered. What miracle did the old prophet pray? He didn't pray that God would deliver them. He didn't ask God to get rid of their enemies. His prayer had nothing to do with the enemy. You would think at the point you're getting bad news, you need to start praying about the bad news. I've come to the conclusion, Mother, that sometimes instead of praying about the bad news we're getting, we ought to be praying God knock out the messenger. I'm going to tell you something. You tolerate too much negative word coming to you. You need to start telling people that call you, hey, did you, uh-uh, oh, park that car right there, uh-uh. If you about to tell me how bad it is, shut your cake hole and hang the phone up. I don't want to hear nothing you got to say. Brother Shelton, we can talk like that. I hope so because I do regularly. I tell people all the time, you need to shut your mouth. If you're going to tell me how bad something is, just be quiet. I can see my own self. I know how bad things are. I don't need you making it worse. What I need to know is, is God still alive and able to do exceeding abundantly? Yeah. Well, then let's talk about that. But I'm going through hell, Brother Shelton. No, you're not. It's not hell. It's a veil. Isn't this just simple on a Sunday morning? We're hemmed up, you say? Yeah. I don't know how you're sitting there eating them poached eggs. They, the enemy, they got us all. Son, hush. Lord, would you change his perception, please? He didn't ask God to do one thing about the obvious problem. 
He needed that little fella to see what he could see. Sometimes the miracle we ought to be praying for is not deliverance, but vision. God, show me what I'm really going through. Show me what's really happening here. If you can, reveal it to me now and let me know. Let me see the truth about this deal. The facts and the truth are not always the same thing. The facts may be you just spend every dime you got on medical expenses. But the truth is you're standing in front of a veil, not an impossibility. You're about to get to the place you've been begging God to take you to. Having done all to do but stand, just stand there. We look at all these hardships that come along and we think, my God, it couldn't get any worse. You better not ever say that because God will prove to you it can. So to whoever it is I'm talking to, you're, you're not going through hell. You have done all the ceremonial stuff and you've done all the processional stuff. And God hardened the heart of a king, maybe. Maybe he allowed somebody to rise up against you so there'd be a battle. Because to get where you need to be, he's made it impossible for you to get there on your own. We no longer have a natural veil left anymore to separate us from where we are and where God wants us. He wanted those high priests to get into the Holy of Holies. Their job was not complete until they had gone somewhere they couldn't get. Why would God want them to go somewhere they couldn't go? Because he needed them to know the only way you're getting there is with me. According to Jewish legend, it was about six man steps from the front door of the tabernacle to the veil, the number of man. That seventh step, the number of God, was where they needed to be. And he made it impossible for them to get there on their own. Then he leaves nuggets of information through scripture like having done all to do but stand. Just stand there. I know you've done this. I know you've been going to church. I know you've been faithful. I know you're giving. I know you're doing. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Now, there's nothing left for you to do. Just be faithful. Just stand. Just wait. Just stand. Just wait. My mother has been praying to hear. I heard my dad for the first time this year pray out loud voluntarily without being solicited. And my mother was so stunned it took her to the next day to call me. I'm in the airport in Atlanta. She calls. She said, did, did you notice your dad praying out loud yesterday at the house? I said, matter of fact, Mama, I did. She said, son, we've been married 55 years, and I have never one time heard your daddy pray. That's mommy's closer than we thought. He's closer than we thought. You are closer to the miracle you've been waiting on than you even, you, you don't, you, you don't get distracted by what that mirror is showing you. The objects you're seeing in that mirror that look like they're so far off, they're closer than they appear. Lord, change our perception. Lord, I'm, I'm tired of always griping and murmuring and complaining about what I'm going through. Would you please help my vision? Help me see what I can't see. And all of a sudden, the scripture doesn't say how long they stood in front of that veil. But I can tell you this. They didn't stay there so long that they outlived their purpose. 
because what they had in their hand swinging and that incense swinging had to get in there to the mercy seat before the fire went out. And it makes, it begs the question, why do I say stuff like, I can't take this anymore, I can't take much more. You, you know what, if you just hang on, just stand there. Having done all to do but stand, just stand there. God will get you where you got to go before the fire goes out. If you'll just stand there and be patient. I don't know how long they stood in front of that veil in the tabernacle. Have no clue. The scripture, to my knowledge, doesn't say they stood there for 10 minutes or 10 days or 3 weeks. I don't know how long they stood there. But before they could complete, before they were unable to complete what they were supposed to complete, God translated them into the presence of the Holy Ghost, into the presence of his spirit, and they applied that blood to the mercy seat. And then he and I know we were told as kids growing up in the church that they had ropes tied around the priest's leg and grapevines. That they did not because if they had had sin in their life, they couldn't have even got into the presence of God. He would have never translated them into his presence with sin in their life. And number two, there was no way for them to get in there to be. And the, the theory was that they tied the rope around the priest's leg so that if he got in the presence of God with sin in his life, he'd die. God killed him, and then they drug him out because nobody else could go in there either. <clears throat> that wasn't true because they couldn't have drug him past the veil. And there's no recorded evidence that I found in Scripture where they had a rope or nothing tied onto him and had bells on his little robe so they'd hear him. If he quit jingling, they knew he'd died, and they drug him out. Well, that's ridiculous. What if the brother just got real still and his little bells quit jingling and, and diamond? Oh, he's dead, fellas. Haul him out. Hey! I'm going to tell you something. You, you better be careful about surrounding yourself with people that will help you. <laughs> I'm going to have to sit down after this one, but I'm going to tell you, you better be careful. You know where I'm going, don't you, Mother Owen? You, you better be careful about surrounding yourself with some of God's little helpers. Because when they think you've had enough, they'll pray you right out from in front of that veil. They'll talk you right out of that holy place. They'll convince you that, you know what, you got sin in your life. You know what, there's something wrong with you. You know what, I know you think, but I, I'm just telling you, it ain't ever going to happen. And the thing you're looking for was closer than you thought it was. It's just beyond the veil. You're going somewhere that man can't get you, but I promise you this, man can keep you out of it. You're trying to get somewhere to a promise God made you, and no man on the planet can get you there, but men can pull you out of there. So if you got a rope tied on, cut the thing loose. You got to, I'm going to tell you, you got to cut some people loose. Mother, you might want to play something melodiously. They, they don't know where this is going to end. Huh. When the time was right. When the timing was right. Not one second before. Not one second later. When the time was right, he translated that priest into the Holy of Holies. And the purpose was complete. Hallelujah. In the perfect timing. You remember the little cartoon, was it Dennis and Menace? Or Family Circus, one of them, maybe both. That his mama would tell him, go next door and borrow a cup of sugar. I need to tell somebody this. She'd send him next door to get a cup of sugar, but then you had this zoomed out view of the whole neighborhood and you saw the little dotted line where he had gone. 
and instead of turning left out the front door to go next door and get a cup of sugar, he took a hard right and went down and went over every slide, swung on every swing, went to the park, run through everybody's backyard, jumped in a couple of pools, and ended up next door to get a cup of sugar. There are some occasions where the people you're praying for, it's a shorter trip just to hang a left. But some people are going to take the long way. Sometimes you look up and your kids look like, my God, I don't even know this child. There's no way they're going to ever make their way back home. But they are closer than you think. Sometimes people take the long way. We just got to hang on to what God told us in the first place and be there when they get there. You understand what I'm telling you? I feel like I've talked about 25 different topics today. But every one of them, I know for a fact God has spoken to somebody about something specific. With him, it's about timing. The perfect will of God will always be achieved when three things are in effect in the same place at the same. You got to be in the perfect place. Antioch West with the perfect people, everybody here at the perfect time now. And by those three things coming together and being what they are, Brother Wright, you, you'll sometimes he'll show you way off down the road what's coming and sometimes he won't. But you can rest assured because you're in the right place with the right people at the right time. Every provision, everything that God's going to do, he's going to do. And when you start building this building, you, you may have to fight hell with a pitchfork, but just fight on because ultimately God's going to give you favor. There may be challenges with the county. There may be an inspector that decides he don't like you and you can choose to get mad at him or realize that maybe his wife's dying with cancer and he's mad at the world. And God said, you know what, Antioch West, I trust you. I've tried to reach him. He's got a great-grandma that prayed for him as a child, and I hadn't forgot those prayers. And he's running out of time, and I have done everything else I can, so I trust you, Antioch West, to be willing to deal with whatever challenges come at his hand because I'm trying to answer the prayers of a great-grandma. You understand what I'm telling you? There is always a reason for what we're going through. Stand with me. Nothing we go through is on accident, not one bit of it. Every move God makes, every word God speaks. And you know what? Yeah, there's some things that just happen. It's that little four-lettered word that we all have to live with and deal with, life. And short of the grave, there's nothing we can do to escape it. It's always going to be there looking you right in the face. But you've got to remember... Sometimes the miracle I need is not what I'm going through to change, but for me to be able to see it the way I'm supposed to see it. And to realize before it's too late, he's going to translate me into that place he's called me to. God will make going where he wants us to go so difficult that when we finally get there, he gets all the glory and all the praise, not just by other people, but by us. When somebody says to you, how did you get here? Your response is, I have no idea. 
I was going through hell yesterday and today I woke up in the promised land. God alone did this. Lift your hands. If anything I've said has applied to you or you felt a witness to it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Lord, I have said everything that you've put in my spirit to say. Lord, I know with each thing I've said, I felt a witness to it and I felt and I've even seen the expressions in people's body language and facial expressions that it was like, yeah, this is mine. I got, I got it. I see it. So, Lord, I thank you for speaking to us. I, I give you honor. I give you credit. I give you glory for taking the time to speak to us and give us peace in our spirit. Lord, help us as we grow in you to come to a place of maturity that we do understand that we're closer to that miracle than we thought we were. We are more near to where we're trying to get than we realized. Give us the grace to stand. Having done all we know to do, we've gone through prayer meetings we've gone through church services we've been faithful in every area and lord there's nothing left for us to do and we finally reached a place of surrender and we're telling you today you know what i wish you know what i'd like but nevertheless not my will but thine be done you're god we're not and we trust you angels come into this place now and guard the people of god i pray a hedge over every one of their minds their spirits their emotion let the enemy not be given access to them to pluck whatever has been spoken into their spirit to destroy it or to steal it from them. Let it stay there and take root and begin to produce fruit. Let their lives be enriched. Let their faith begin to grow from this moment forward in a new dimension. Let their hope and expectation and peace be multiplied exponentially. Increase them in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Would you clap your hands under the Lord, Brother Wright? I can trust in his word. Hallelujah. Can we just do one more thing? I feel it, it would be prudent to do this. Can you just reach over next to somebody? Come on, there's somebody today. You just need to let the Lord touch your mind to begin to change the perspective. The man of God said it. Some of you are closer than you think. Some of you have been praying for family members, husbands, wives, parents, children, aunts, uncles, neighbors. And you don't realize that God is at work and what God's doing. Some of you are in this place today and you are on your way to finding God in a way that you've never found them before or maybe rekindling something that you've lost and you feel like sometimes that's so far away. But the man of God said today you're closer than you think. Let your faith be challenged today. Come on right now where you're at. Just, just let the Lord use you to pray for that person next to you. Come on, right now. Every person in here today, God's brought you to this place. Every person here today, God has ordained you to be here in this moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, I loose your power in this place. Open the eyes of those in this place by the power of your word, by the authority of your spirit. And in your name we speak it. Come on, maybe you don't know what to pray for, but just pray in the Spirit for a moment. You may not know the words to say, but let the Lord pray through you. In the name of Jesus.
In the name of Jesus. It is so, Lord. You've spoken it, and it is so. You've declared it today, and it is so. Never had a problem. Oh, in the name of Jesus. 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 Come on, just another moment. Just another moment. You and Jesus. Come on, you and Jesus. Oh. In the name of Jesus. Through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. I can trust to trust in God through it all. Through it all. Through it all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. 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 You know, it's got to start somewhere. And every great thing that's ever been done had a starting point. And everything in your life has got to have a starting point. We want the starting point to be thundering rolls of heaven, earth shaking, Lights flashing moments. But if you go back and you look at scripture. There were times where God manifested himself in those ways. But a lot of the great things that began in scripture. Did not begin with great thunderous voices of heaven. But it became because God planted a seed in somebody's heart. And they took that seed. And instead of letting life come along when they took that seed and began to confess that seed I'm telling you in the Holy Ghost today there have been things that have been spoken in this room today that weren't spoken with the thunderous rumbles of heaven though the ceiling didn't open and God didn't send his voice down in a great loud booming way but the, but the word of God was spoken and the seed I'm telling you the seed of revival and harvest was spoken in this place today and we spent seven days plowing up dirt what do you do when you plowed it up you gotta plant something because if you plow something up and then you plant nothing guess what you get weed you get weeds. So we've been seven days praying and plowing it up. And God said, I've come today to plant seed. Now, if you believe God's planted seed and you believe God's spoken, why don't you just lift your hands one more time and let's just give them thanks. Come on, give them thanks. You say, well, I don't see it yet. No, the oak tree is not there, but the oaks, the acorns in the ground. No, the oak tree's not there yet, but the acorn's in the ground. Come on, receive the word right now with faith. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We give you praise and we give you glory and we give you honor. We give you thanks today. 
Lord, for your speaking to me, for your word confirming to me today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, would you clap your hands to the Lord one more time and give him praise?